Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today we're going to talk about what does sex look like after sexual trauma, short-term and long-term. Because I think one of the things that I notice in my practice with my clients and even with my friends and colleagues is that one of the blocks that they have around their sexuality is the fact that they haven't worked through the trauma memories that they had. And now it's showing up in the relationship with their sexual partners. And that can be very frustrating. A few months ago, I invited another therapist, uh, Shannon McHenry, a licensed marriage family therapist, to join my practice in Torrance because of her extensive background in trauma treatment and also complex treatments of complex trauma. Because what I truly believe is all these different mental health challenges and areas of focus are a specific niche. And the fact that I'm a psychologist, I've been to, I was counting the other day, graduate program for nine years because I did another master and then another master and a postdoc. And even with my postgraduate degree, I don't think I am at the best fit to treat all sorts of mental health challenges that people have. I truly believe that in order to be effective with different presentations, it's important for the clinician to be on top of their field with training and knowledge and all these experiences. And it's funny that as a psychologist, I feel this way. The other day I was listening to this coach podcast, which I love listening to podcasts like the rest of you guys, which the other podcaster recommended this podcast. So I'm listening to this podcast, this person who is someone that she lost weight and she talks about weight loss and stuff. And this is specifically area I I listen to because I want to see what kind of a diet messaging people are spreading. Anyhow, long story short, Someone came to her show and said, oh, you know, I struggle with bulimia. Do you work with bulimia? So for those of you guys that they don't know what bulimia is, it's a form of eating disorders, could be life-threatening, very serious. And people go to residential. I, I did like several years of postdoc on it. And this person who's just never been to graduate program in psychology, she said, oh, yeah, I work with all sorts of mental health things. They're all similar. It's similar to how I control my eating, which it was like mind blowing for me. I was thinking, okay, no, it's not similar. I'm glad for you that you had the success yourself, but bulimia is a form of eating disorder. And there's so many psychological elements associated to it. And it's essential for someone to kind of address those things. Anyhow, long story short, I just want to say that if you guys are going to therapists, thinking therapist, please make sure you guys are finding someone that's knowledgeable in the area that you need support. As far as our guest today, Shannon McHenry, as I mentioned, she has extensive trauma experience. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist with specialty focus in childhood trauma, rape and battering, and PTSD. 
She's a trauma therapist. She works in my practice in Torrance, combining clinical experience with passion to support women in repairing their relationships with themselves and others. She has supported many to create a long-lasting recovery from destructive behaviors. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Shannon McHenry. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I shared with you guys during the introduction, I am very excited to have my colleague, Shannon McHenry, licensed marriage family therapist on the show today. Shannon, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I am so excited to have you because I was sharing with our listeners that I don't specifically work with trauma and I know that's uh, one of your areas of specialty. And I'm kind of curious, tell us how did you get to this work? Sure. So, you know, I started my training off working with, you know, domestic violence and sexual trauma. And, you know, there's something about that population. I just, you know, I just fell in love with it and I've done it ever since. And you know, I've gotten the opportunity to do, you know, a lot of different kinds of trauma training. And, you know, it's just something that, you know, in the field of trauma, it's like we're continuing to, you know, learn new things. And, you know, with brain science and all that being kind of new, it's, you know, it's an ongoing learning process. Yeah. And I think it's a true specialty. Some people sure. say, you know, we treat everything. <laughs> but right. as you said, we get all this new training and interventions. And it's important to be, first of all, passionate about working uh, with this population and also being up to date with the research. Sure. So I'm very kind of curious to know on the clients, that, with the clients that you work with in the past, that they experienced uh, sexual assault. What are some of the challenges that you notice that they experience around their sexuality? Sure. So, you know, I think one of the problems with sexual assault, right, is, you know, it's about power and control, right? And so when someone's assaulted, you know, they, it, it kind of takes their power away and, and sex can become, you know, sort of a weapon Mm -hmm. instead of being, you know, this great pleasurable thing, it can become, you know, really kind of challenging, dark, awful experience. And one of the problems with trauma that, you know, I'm sure we'll get into later is that, you know, you can be in a great relationship, you can trust your partner and all these things. But if you have that trauma history, you can have a trigger and your body remembers, right? And so you might feel safe with your partner and rationally, we know all that. But the thing about trauma is it's, it's very much stored in the body. And so no amount of kind of rationalizing can really you know, when there's a trigger, no amount of rationalizing can really get you out of that. And I think the physiological piece of it, it's very important. I know you wrote a blog for us a few months ago about how it's impacting our body and our brain. So uh, what are some of the kind of physiological responses that you notice in the trauma survivors? Sure. So, you know, when someone comes in, you know, new for therapy and, you know, maybe they've had an assault, you know, a lot of times they may feel, people will describe feeling, you know, crazy or, you know, dysregulated or whatnot. And, you know, the first thing I always tell people is, you know, you're having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, right? The body's response under stress, right, is to survive, right? And so what happens is, you know, somebody may, you know, have a hard time sitting still, right? They may have a hard time concentrating, right? They may, you know, constantly feel that they're on guard and watching and whatnot, right? And just to give, you know, just a 
kind of brief synopsis of kind of what happens in our brain, right, is, you know, our brain's goal is to survive, right? No matter what, that's the number one goal, right? And kind of what happens with trauma is something happens, there's a trauma, and then our amygdala, right, which is kind of our fear response, you know, fires, right? And the problem with the amygdala is it's not necessarily, it it doesn't necessarily have the appropriate reaction, right? It's more biased toward the fear position as opposed to, you know, pro-social behavior. And so if the amygdala fires and, you know, say somebody is with a history of trauma is, you know, in their kitchen, they're making dinner and maybe their partner comes up behind them and they may feel that they're in this dangerous situation again, right? So something that, you know, we know, okay, my partner's safe, everything's okay. But there's that trigger of somebody taps me on the shoulder, my body responds, right? So survivors can feel that they're constantly in that fight or flight state, right? Um, Another problem with trauma is it kind of, I guess the best way I could describe it is, say there's a threat at the White House, right? What happens is kind of everything kind of shuts down and everybody stays where they are. The problem with trauma is in order for our brains to be healthy and fully functioning, Everything needs to be talking to each other. But what happens when there's a trauma is everything kind of shuts down, right? And so our lower brain is not talking to our upper brain. As we know, you know, our prefrontal cortex, which is kind of in, you know, in the front of our head that isn't necessarily developed until fully developed toward, you know, 2025, is that's our ability to reason, to form a narrative, to process things, right? And with trauma, that is less important, right, according to our brains than the survival response, right? So we don't get that opportunity to process, right? And so, so the trauma can get stuck in our body and we can feel, you know, that we're constantly on edge and constantly dysregulated. And thank you so much for all of this great synapses and information. And I think it's very important to talk about the changes in the brain and the body, because what happens is sometimes I feel like my clients think it's all in their head or they will tell them like, you know, it's not real. And you can just like muscle your muscle through this kind of pain and trauma and you can be strong. And again, if it's these are the changes in our body and brain. Sometimes we need help to, ca- exactly. to change these things. And I love the kind of emphasis on the safety zone that you mentioned, because sure. in order for us to feel sexually aroused and really kind of experiencing desire, we need to have that, need to ha- feel that safety. And, sure. you know, sometimes my clients and my friends and colleagues say, you know, what about the fantasies that we have that's kind of risky and it's kind of like it's very dangerous situation. But I, you know, one of my supervisor always were telling me about how the purpose of those fantasies is to create the psychological safety in a sense that it sure. reduces the shame. So I think it's very important for people to understand that this is kind of beyond you working through it on, on like telling yourself with just self-talk right. most sure. of the time. So I'm uh, very excited and grateful to have clinicians like you to kind of focus and help people around this. You know, the other thing that at times I hear a lot that people 
don't get help. They don't, they feel they don't deserve help because they are kind of blaming themselves. They sure. think they are kind of like did something wrong that they caused this trauma, especially around sexual assault. So I'm sure. kind of curious to hear what are some of the common things that you hear the survivors of sexual assault usually blame themselves for? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of myths out there around sexual violence, right, that can really, you know, not be helpful to survivors in their recovery, right? And to go back to something you asked earlier about kind of the result of sexual trauma, you know, people can feel, you know, they can feel like it's their fault, they can feel really ashamed, they can feel dirty, things like that, right? And it just becomes a very negative experience. You know, so some of the myths that we see, and I'm sure, you know, everyone's familiar with, this and, you know, things like one, one thing that I hear constantly is, well, you know, I was drinking, right, or I was under the influence, right. And, you know, that's one thing that survivors will use to really blame themselves. Um, And also perpetrators can use that, you know, well, if you wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done that, right. But the reality is, people drink alcohol all the time and and they don't get assaulted. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, unfortunately, you know, again, it's about power and control. And sometimes when we use substances, people can feel that, you know, maybe they're less in control and that that had contributed. Right. And so that's, that's a big one. Another big one that, that we hear all the time is, well, if you weren't wearing that, right, then this wouldn't have happened. Right. And, Again, you know, it's about power and control. You know, sexual assault is not about, you know, sexuality and pleasure. It's about gaining control over somebody, right? So so the argument that, well, if you weren't wearing that, then you wouldn't have, you know, aroused this person or whatever. It just, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up, right? Because the reality is, you know, we can, you know, we can wear whatever we want and, and walk around the world and it's not, it's not an excuse for somebody to assault us. Right? And I think with that is we're kind of undermining, like I usually hear it about for women that you were wearing this uh, revealing right. clothing and it's undermining the men's uh, sophistication, their exactly. level of kind of control. So who are these men that are, as soon as they see a stimuli, they want to attack someone. Exactly. So I don't exactly. think that's right. Exactly. It's hard because it's like, you know, I think, you know, obviously, you know, not all men are rapists, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a small population, but I think that, you know, that can create issues for, for men who aren't, right? And there's fear around that as well. Of It, it just creates kind of a, a weird dynamic. And I think it's important to, you know, continue to have that dialogue for how it affects women, but also how it affects men. Mm-hmm. That is true, because again, now it's just, it's funny that one of my friend and colleague who was in another episode was saying that how many men who are not perpetrators, they internalize these messages sure. and at the time they feel paralyzed about what they can do. And that caused some issues as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And one thing I just want to add in there, too, is, you know, it's we hear mostly about, you know, rape and sexual assault as as a women's issue, but but men absolutely do experience sexual assault and rape as well. So I just want to throw that in there. No, I think that's definitely important. And also the other piece of back to what you were telling us about kind of the person drinking. Um, and I think that's one of those excuses that as as you said, we hear about it all the time. And people yeah. drink every day, all day. And right. again, it doesn't give others to permission to take advantage of them. So right. this exactly. is very frustrating. 
Exactly. Exactly. Any other myth that you hear? Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many different ones. We had, uh, there should be a, a blog that was, that was recently up about myths around sexual violence. So another big one is these kind of go together, right? But that, you know, rapes happen in dark alleys by strangers, mm-hmm. right? And that's just, you know, that does happen. But the amount of assaults that happen that are stranger rapes is just, it's, it's pretty rare, right? And often it's, you know, somebody that the partner has known, maybe they, you know, had previous sexual experiences before, which another myth comes in of, well, I was intimate with this person before. So that gives them the right to have sex with me and do what they want with me whenever they want, right, which is obviously not true. Another one is that we hear as well, you know, it's my husband, and you know, they have a right to my body, right. And in the context of a relationship, right, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, I own you, right? We see we see sexual assault a lot in domestic violence relationships as well. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the women that I've worked with who have come in and, and had spousal rape say, well, I didn't know that it was rape because this is my husband, right? And, you know, it's, that is something that's very devastating for me. Growing up in Iran, I was hearing that a lot from people right. who were like very religious, kind of feeling sure. that I don't know why I have this reaction because, you know, my husband has right to my body, which is right. like mind blowing for me. I mean, I, I understand the culture and everything, but I think that's important to it is important for our women and also again, men to see it as a kind of sexual assault in those situations as well. And I think the other one that was very important you you mentioned is like, if you were intimate with a person, if you had sex before, it doesn't give permission for the person to have like, it's not something that like you you give the consent for rest of your life. Right, right. And I know that sometimes people feel undermined when they kind of talk about rape with someone that they were intimate with their friends and colleagues. And also the other thing is around kind of different kinds of consent. So if you're giving consent, I don't know, for oral sex doesn't mean that you're giving consent for intercourse. And I think exactly we need to get much better with having these conversations. Exactly. And that's one thing that I always tell people around, you know, initiating any kind of sexual behavior is, you know, there are different levels of consent, right? Just because I'm kissing this person doesn't mean I want to provide oral sex, right? Just because I want to provide oral sex doesn't mean I want to have intercourse, right? And, and continuing to get permission and get consent kind of at every step of the way, right? And making sure that that both people are on board with everything that's happening. Right. And I think the other piece of it is self-forgiveness, so even sure. if we put ourselves in a situation that we were vulnerable, something happens again, I don't think like a rape or sexual assault is something that you bring upon yourself. But sure. even if that's a narrative you have, how do you encourage people to promote self-forgiveness? Sure. So, you know, a lot of times in working with trauma and working with sexual assault, the first steps, you know, kind of a combination, but one is is working on regulating the body, but two is also psychoeducation, Right. Because I think a lot of people come in and they don't, you know, they know they've been assaulted, but they don't, they don't really have much information on it. And so being able to talk about the myths, right, and talk about, you know, sexual assault as an issue of power and control, right, and not one about sexuality, right. Um, I think also, you know, reinforcing for people that it's not their fault. You know, unfortunately, 
you know, sometimes people who don't know, you know, might, you know, make comments and whatnot. Maybe it's a family member. I've had a number of clients, unfortunately, who have gone to, you know, law enforcement and maybe felt invalidated there. And so changing that narrative for people and and helping them to understand, okay, this is not your fault, right? This is something that happened to you. Another intervention that can be actually extremely helpful for sexual assault in particular is group therapy, right? Because it gives people, you know, trauma can be very isolating. Sexual assault can be very isolating and people can feel very alone. And where group can be so powerful is it allows people with similar experiences to come together, to talk about it and to understand it in a way that they don't feel alone, right? And that's something that, you know, I can offer, you know, all the support and education in the world, but there's something about group therapy and, and talking to others who have had similar situations that can just be, you know, life-changing for people. And I love that, that, that you're talking about different levels of support that people can get. So with individual therapy is part of it, but also getting that sense of community of being heard by other members of the group. That, sure. That's very important as well. But you're right. Big part of it also is kind of psychoeducation. People kind of right. knowing, first of all, how prevalent it is and how, what are the symptoms that you're feeling in our body? So. Sure. You know, I, I, I know that subset of people are able to long term is kind of work through it. But there are people, at least even I see in my practice, sure. they're coming in for other stuff, for sex therapy, mm-hmm. for eating disorder issue. And they struggle long term because of the uh, sexual assault that they experience. Sure. So what does sex look like after sexual trauma for clients long term? Sure. So, you know, I think it it can be kind of complex and it kind of depends on, you know, every client is different, but I think, you know, some things that can be really helpful is, you know, being able to have open communication with a partner, right? I think, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody who allows you that space to, you know, be the one who can initiate, right? And be the one who can, you know, have some of that power and control back, it can be a very healing experience, right? Because again, like we talked about, sexual assault is an experience where your power and control is taken away. And so being able to gain that back in your partnership can be really helpful. You know, sometimes what we see with, you know, after sexual trauma is sometimes people will become what we call sexually anorexic and just not just completely shut off from their body, right? They don't, want to be intimate with others, they don't want to be intimate with themselves, and they just, you know, they want to completely shut down. And sometimes what we see is people will become kind of overly sexual, right, in an attempt to, you know, regain that power and control. Um, And they may even put themselves, you know, in, you know, dangerous situations or things like that, you know, unprotected sex and whatnot, you know, because maybe their self-esteem has been you know, harmed and they want to kind of gain that power and control back. And I think uh, one other important thing is that, you know, sometimes people suppress the memories or so for some reason it's not resurfaced until sure. they are in a loving relationship. Yeah, and like some, sometimes, you know, like when they're when they're having sex with this wonderful partner that they want to have sex, they feel triggered and all of this sure. kind of emotions rush back. I hear that often. So I guess the other part of it is how can the partners support their loved ones if sure. during this kind of recovery process? Right. 
Yeah. You know, one thing I think is super important is, you know, being able to talk about it, right? Because again, it's so isolating and people have so much shame about it that, you know, being able to have that space, you know, to, you know, feel whatever the feelings are about it, right? And, and discuss it and understand it and have somebody there, you know, who can really be compassionate and really understand it and, and really be kind of an ally in that process can be really helpful. You know, I think that, again, communication is very important, right? So being able to have that dialogue and, and you know, in the process of being intimate with your partner to be able to talk about what's happening, right? And understanding what's happening in the body and being able to share that with your partner and be respected can be a very healing experience. I think being able to feel validated and, and for partners not to blame or shame their partner for being assaulted, but be able to, you know, challenge those myths right along with them and, and be able to, you know, support them in that and, and, and help them to understand, okay, this is not your fault, right? And then again, you know, one thing that, you know, I always suggest to people is, you know, being able to take some of that control back by maybe being the one to initiate, right? Or being able to set those boundaries of, you know, I want this and I don't want that, right? And, and for the partner to be able to understand that and be supportive and, you know, support them in those needs. And I think it's so important to talk to your partner about it, about your struggles, even if you're just saying that you don't need to even go to details about what happened and stuff, just letting them know that you had this past history. But I think it it takes lots of courage and it takes lots of trust in the relationship. Absolutely. When do you recommend people to kind of open up about these things with their sexual partner? Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's different for everybody. And I think you know, I think there's people who, you know, if the assault was maybe more recent, maybe they're having more, you know, having more symptoms, having more triggers, you know, it might be more important to, you know, talk about kind of early on of, you know, this is what's happening and I need to share this with you, right? And then there's some people maybe who had a trauma a long time ago, maybe they don't, it, it isn't something that's really super present. It's not something that I think about a lot. But again, you know, like we talked about earlier, maybe they get triggered when they're being intimate and something comes up, right? And being able to have that dialogue then, right? So I think, you know, and again, with, with being able to share these things, you know, with, with, you know, the power and control being taken away, you know, being able for survivors to have that voice and be able to share, you know, what they want to share, when they want to share, and for it to be kind of their experience and, and then being able to share what they want, when they want, and having and being able to have that control over their story. And I think it's important to kind of know the long-term outcome of if people get help. For example, sure. when people are coming into therapy, do you feel is this something that they can completely recover from and have like great like sexual relationship and healing in different aspects of life? Or it's one of those things that you just learn to live with it? Sure. Yeah, you know, I do. I mean, I've I've had patients who have gone on to have, you know, beautiful relationships and beautiful lives and, you know, and they they get some distance from the trauma and and they're able to, you know, form a new narrative about it and it, you know, their their life experience isn't necessarily based around the trauma, right? And I think sometimes it takes some time to get there. It can take years, but people absolutely do get there. 
It's it's important to know that there's a way out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. out of this because I know exactly. when we are in midst of it, it can feel so real and raw. Sure. So I, sure. I totally understand why people don't just don't want to deal with it. But it's one of those monsters that, like, the harder you push away, the harder they push back. Sure. Yeah, and one thing that you know, just to kind of talk about treatment for a moment, because I think it's really important is in order to, you know, fully recover and get to a place where, you know, it's it's not necessarily everything's triggering, we have to work with the body, right? We could, you know, someone could go into therapy and they could, you know, talk about it for years, but if their body is still responding to something, you know, and they can't regulate, then then we need to do something different, right? We need to work with the body. We need to do things like, you know, there was a study actually done Bessel van der Kolk, who's, you know, one of the trauma, you know, specialists and and top researchers in the world, did a study on yoga for PTSD, right? And they found that that was more effective, right, than any medication that they'd, they'd ever had for PTSD, right? So being able to work with the body and regulate, right? Different skills that we can learn, right? Being able to, you know, do grounding exercises, right? Which is, basically getting back into our body, using our senses to be present in the moment, right? Because again, with trauma is, you know, we're, we're not in our bodies, right? We learn that it's frightening to be in our bodies, we can't be in our bodies, right? So being able to work with that and get back in our bodies, learn to regulate and learn to not be afraid of our, of our bodies and afraid of our needs and our desires can really be helpful. And I think it's important to have therapists and clinicians like you that are aware of this kind of like a holistic treatment plans that kind of you're advocating for people to address these issues from all aspects. And guys, if you're interested to learn more about trauma, uh, Shannon wrote number of wonderful blog posts in our website, oasis2care.com. You can go ahead and check it. And it is just so informative. I I usually update the website. And when I read it, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) And these are great content. So I highly encourage you guys to to go ahead and check it out. Shannon, thank you so much for your time. This was so helpful for us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. No, of course. And and I put a link in the show notes to all the information you might need if you want to contact Shannon, if you want to read her blogs, you can find it in the show notes. Shannon, thank you so much for your help. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shannon. This is such an important conversation to have because unfortunately, all around the world, in the United States, sexual assaults are very common. In the U.S., one in three women and one in six men experience some form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime. This number is huge. So it's the chances are either you or someone you know experienced sexual trauma is quite high. So if this is something that you're struggling with and you're ready to get help about it, you can contact us. We can connect you with Shannon. You can come in for a therapy. Our number is 310-600-9912. Or you can go to our website, oasis2care.com. We have tons of great blogs that Shannon wrote. She exclusively writes about trauma and you can check it out and let me know what you think. All right, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, 
visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.